This is a podcast from the Scottish Magazines Network, a research project about Scotland's independent magazine culture from the 1960s to the 1990s. To find out more, just search Scottish Magazines Network. The project is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Welcome to this podcast for the Scottish Magazines Network. I'm Dr Rachel Alexander of the University of Strathclyde. In this episode, we'll be focusing on Scottish feminist print, talking about some often overlooked magazines from the late 1970s and early 1980s, the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal and Ms Print. In recent years, feminist periodicals have gained considerable public and academic attention. But even with this increased attention, the Scottish context is rarely mentioned. Perhaps one of the reasons for this is, as Sarah Brown notes in her excellent book, The Women's Liberation Movement in Scotland, that women in Scotland were slower to produce their own periodicals compared to their counterparts south of the border. Another reason might be that Scottish feminist magazines had remarkably short lives compared to more long-running titles like Spare Rib or The American Miz or The Canadian Branching Out. The Scottish Women's Liberation Journal, established by a collective of Scottish feminists and launched at the 1977 Scottish Women's Liberation Conference in Aberdeen, would only last until 1978, so just one year. Misprint, which emerged from the ashes of the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal, ran for only a little longer, from 1978 to 1981. And even the later Harpies and Quines, established in 1992, only lasted two years. But their short lives are no reason to ignore these magazines. And in fact, I think it's one of the things that make them so deserving of attention. They have a lot to tell us about the challenges and dynamics of feminist magazine publishing and feminist activism within the broader Scottish political and periodical landscape. And that's what we'll be discussing today with Dr Esther Breitenbach of the University of Edinburgh. Esther has an extensive career in community education and then academia and has published widely on Scottish women's history and Scottish women in public life, among other topics. And perhaps most relevant for our discussions today, she was one of the founding members of the collectives that published the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal and Ms Print. And with me asking questions is Dr Scott Hames of the University of Stirling. Hello. I started our conversation by asking Esther to say a little bit about her own start in writing and activism what got her involved, and if there were any magazines that were important to her as a young reader and thinker. Well, I thought I could start on a facetious note that as a Dundonian, I was brought up on DC Thompson comics. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Beryl the Pearl and Minnie the Minx. Um, uh, uh, but in terms of more political uh, literature, as I got to my student years. Well, even before that, I think I would have been aware of things like the International Times. And indeed, I was aware of Scottish International when I was a student, but I can't really recall reading it specifically, though I think I must have. I think that the thing that got me writing would have been, uh, well, one was commitment to political activity, but that, that at the time, not so much magazines, but once I got involved in feminism and um, left-wing politics, there was a, a really flourishing pamphlet culture. Mm. And 
Um, uh, not necessarily Scottish-based one, I should add here, but, you know, there were places that you could get pamphlets, whether you were talking about alternative bookshops or other sorts of alternative spaces, um, or university bookstalls and so on at meetings. Um, and that would be left-wing, anarchist, pacifist, and then, of course, as the women's movement developed, feminist uh, pamphlets, many of them from North America, um, then also Britain, some from France and Italy, uh, that sort of into the 70s. Um, so, th so I think those were kind of stimulus uh, to get writing. Yeah, that's so interesting that you've mentioned that sort of international scope and we'll maybe be coming on to that a little bit later on. In terms then of, to get us started on the magazines that we'll be discussing today, so the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal and Ms. Print, um, and they were published in the late 1970s to the early 1980s, so maybe a useful way of getting into that is with your thoughts on the women's liberation movement in Scotland or even beyond at that time. So just to get a sense of what it was like, how it was maybe distinct from the feminist landscape south of the border and how you kind of came to be involved in the movement? Well, just on uh, sort of referring back to the, the magazine's point, I was, of course, aware of Spare Room uh, and yeah. read that, although I don't think I ever subscribed to it, but certainly read it. Um, so where the idea of the, the journal and, and then misprint its successor came from was really uh, that the women's liberation movement in Scotland had begun to network already by quite an early stage. And um, the best account of that is in Sarah Brown's book on the women's liberation yes. movement in Scotland. So by 19, early 1972, the first women's liberation movement Scottish conference was held. That was in Glasgow. And at that point, I had only just got involved in a women's liberation group in Dundee. I was a student at Dundee University at the time, um, and I knew people in the university and outside the university. So our initial group wasn't a, an exclusively students group, but there was later a, a university group as well. And I think, well, what, what motivated the feminist activism in the first place was reading texts like Germaine Greer's um, The Female Eunuch, uh, mm -hmm. hearing about groups, being aware of things being reported in the press, although not favourably at that stage, it must be said, I guess the things like the, the Miss World contests and so on. And a lot of it was word of mouth. So you're talking to people about the issues uh, and reacting to, I think, what now would be called everyday sexism, you know, the sense of not being yeah. taken seriously, not being listened to. And then the movement in Scotland really mushroomed in the early 70s and very diverse geographically as well as I think in the, in the kind of feminisms represented. So the perspective that I'll be talking about is only one among many. Uh, and certainly whilst we have a very good history from Sarah Brown and we have the Grit and Diamonds book published in I think 1990, there, there's, there's a lot more to be written about the movement. Why was the sense of there being a need for something in Scotland? Um, I think that the way to, to articulate that is maybe to say that what people really wanted to address was their lived experience in Scotland, which is not to say that it was unique or totally distinct from what was going on elsewhere. 
And again, I think that's a, an important point to make, that it's not just that the women's liberation movement was international, although in initial phases probably in Western developed countries, but it was international. And so were the, the trends that I think underpinned the movement, like access to you know, expansion of higher education, uh, access to employment opportunities. So, so these factors were around clearly in Scotland uh, as well. But as I say, the networking had already begun, and I think people felt that we had to, to engage with a, a situation which was, I think, more dominated by class politics than, than perhaps down south, although uh, socialist politics were all, always a, an important component of the women's movement in Britain, more so than in the US, for example. We had a sense of things being more challenging in Scotland, partly about what we call for shorthand a Calvinist inheritance. I know that that can be contested in terms of the historic misuse of the term Calvinism, but that sense of repressive sexuality, morality being more difficult in terms of the kind of roles that women might have in society. Now, I wouldn't care to say whether that would stand up to detailed scrutiny as a historian, but that was definitely the feeling. Uh, and there were things like the social, social reforms were slower to happen in Scotland, like divorce law reform, uh, reform on uh, legalisation of homosexuality. Um, and also we had to contend with the issue of Catholic-based opposition to the 1967 Abortion Act and involvement in attempting to later restrict it. So these would be elements that, that made us feel that there was a need to look specifically at Scottish experience. Then, as the movement developed and began to look at issues like, well, domestic violence in particular, and the need to practically challenge that by setting up refuges, look at legal issues and policing, then we had to engage with what was a separate Scottish institutional environment. The fact that the law in Scotland was different, that you had to deal with a local government system that was different, that separate legislation had to be carried out through Scottish Grand Committee and so on. It's really striking when I go back through these magazines, how much of the political commentary is very detailed and focused on legal reform. So that it's clear there's people with a lot of legal knowledge and sort of institutional know-how helping each other to navigate this shifting landscape. Was that a key priority, do you think? I've been rereading some of the issues uh, just to refresh my memory. And it can see that we're having debate about reform and revolution. Because on the one hand, there is a focus on legal issues. On the other hand, there was a lot of revolutionary rhetoric. And, and I think that it's worth commenting briefly on that, simply that many of us were connected to left-wing organisations. And that, that was very much the style of the time. We were also very young, early to mid-20s students or just emerging from from uh, uh, being students and beginning to, to look for uh, employment. So that there's a lot of revolutionary rhetoric. However, there's also a very practical focus, as you say, on, on issues like housing, domestic violence, matrimonial law, divorce. And I know that some of the input into that was coming from people who were already working in those spheres, for example, Sheila Gilmore, who went on to become councillor in Edinburgh and then later a member of parliament. Um, Sheila was trained as a lawyer. She was involved with the legal and financial independence campaign. Uh, she knew what the law was on these matters. 
Um, Fran Walsoff, who was the first coordinator for Women's Aid, also had expertise on legal matters, although not, not uh, a lawyer by training. Evelyn Hunter, who wrote uh, the Scottish Women's Handbook, worked for Shelter, so was particularly expert on housing issues. That's great. So it seems as though the magazines were picking up on that earlier networking, on conferences, on pamphlets, and actually had quite a bit of momentum going into the formation of the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal uh, in 1977. Yeah. You've said before that that particular journal arose from a proposal put to the Scottish Women's Liberation Conference in September 1976. Could you say a bit more about the main drivers behind the proposal? So what people thought the magazine would be for or what problems it might be some kind of solution for? Yes, I'm, I'm not sure to, to, to what extent it, it was sort of conceived as a, a, a solution to a problem, but I think what it might have intended to... One was the networking dimension. Um, the conference and the, 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 the proposal was put to was in the Partick Borough Halls, in, in, I think, in, in 1976, that's in, in Glasgow. And um, the the idea of putting the proposal, everything was done in collective and, you know, as part of the movement in those days. So I think it was really to get a sort of endorsement of a need for it, although obviously the collect, there was a small collective that actually um, ran it. I think we were probably wanting to do a number of things. One is to develop ideas and I know there was a lot of talk about you know analysis and theory um, but really to, to root that in Scottish experience into what we knew of Scottish society and of course at that point in time we had very little to go on whether we we're talking about history of Scottish women or uh, sociological studies of gender and so on so I think it's, it's that idea we need to understand Scottish society um, but also, I notice in, in the first editorial, um, as well as stating that it was an open collective, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that later, it was intended to be feminist and non-sectarian and open to all shades of opinion in the women's movement. Um, the non-sectarian comment there was not about religious sectarianism. It was about left-wing mm -hmm. sectarianism. Uh, so basically it was saying it was not a vehicle for pushing the lines of a particular party or a particular uh, grouplet, uh, uh, as, you know, of which there were many at the time. Another thing that the, the, the journals did, and this was also true with misprint, is that we printed the contacts and listings of groups. So it, it was not just about uh, communicating with people already in the movement. I think it was trying to attract more women into the movement. Um, but I will reiterate that point that it would only been a section of the movement because it's socialist feminist basis, we wouldn't have had all the groups uh, you know, across Scotland by any manner of means. And also not everybody would have been willing to have had their telephone numbers or addresses published. Mm -hmm. and that strikes me as a really interesting feature of the, the place of the magazine within the broader movement, because some of the events and forms of organization that are being reported are very personal. And it's about people's personal lived experience. Yeah. And it's about consciousness raising and occasionally debates and analysis about whether a very kind of individualized approach to women's oppression uh, will get very far. And then it seems as though the magazine is kind of balancing that with the networking and practical support that joins people together to get away from that more individual focus. Do you think that's part of the story? 
I think that's true. I think it's covering that that range in the initial phase, and it probably moves away from that after the, the split uh, and when misprint was formed. And obviously, there are also some there's some poems as well, so that it, it it's covering a range of methods of expression, um, which don't necessarily sit that comfortably together. But I think you you can see that there's there's a way in which people are trying to work out where they stand and what their analysis is, and they're not necessarily um, in, in agreement with each other, which is fine, that was part of the purpose. But but there is a move going on towards the campaigning side, I think. And and the, the news section, for example, would be paragraphs commenting on things that would have been in, in the press, such as sex discrimination cases, equal pay strikes, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that, you know, additionally, in in terms of the networking and consciousness raising aspects, I mean, that's certainly something that quite a lot has been has been written about, um, mostly in other national contexts, about feminist publishing, perhaps about the sort of centrality of publishing in terms of feminist action and activism, which then often leads on to some of the challenges. Um, of feminist publishing, a few, a few of which you've noted there about, you know, sort of reaching an intended readership of people who are perhaps not already in involved in the movement, but also sort of distribution di- difficulties and also kind of structures of editorial collectives. So I suppose um, our next question could be: Did you face any of these challenges with the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal or Misprint? And if so, how did the collectives navigate such challenges? Well, I'll talk about distribution first, and then I'll go on to talk about collectives and, and direction. Um, well, not just distribution, but production. I mean, we did everything ourselves, and nobody was paid for anything. Um, and in those days, uh, well, that meant using a typewriter and cutting and pasting the print stick and using Letraset. I don't know if anybody knows anymore what Letraset is. <laughs> it's kind of sheets, she, sheets of paper with typefaces and fonts of different sizes. Um, that were, you know, on backs. You had, they were on backing paper, and you had to rub them onto your sheet of paper where you had your type article cut out, and um, letter by letter construct your heading. Uh, so you can see, uh, I'm sure, if you look at some of the issues, how they weren't always perfectly aligned or spaced. Um, but it, it really was a kind of amateur, um, you almost say Blue Peter style production. <laughs> um, uh, but anybody could do it, which was the, the, the saving grace. Um, and distribution, well, we did that ourselves as well. Um, we would put some copies of uh, the journal and then misprint in bookshops like um, James Thins in Edinburgh, and it was I think it was at John Smith's in Glasgow and St Vincent Street, which were the main main bookshops in the towns at, at, at the time. And then alternative bookshops, obviously in Aberdeen, Boomtown Books. I'm not quite sure when the 1st of May bookshop in Edinburgh was set up, whether, whether that was the 80s or earlier. But play, places like that, you'd also take bags of uh, magazines to... Uh, conferences and meetings and sell them 
to people, uh, and there were some subscriptions I, I, I noticed, um, but a lot of it was literally, you know, you selling them yourselves, and and, and it was very difficult to ensure that you you covered your costs. The cost, as I say, we did all the work ourselves. Uh, and the editorial collective did quite a lot of writing as well, but we also got other people to write things. And we'd ask women artists to do some illustrations where we could. You were scrabbling about to, to find people. Um, but uh, the, the only cost, therefore, were the printing costs. And most of them were printed by Aberdeen People's Press, but not all of them. And I was looking again at um, costs. This is going on a bit to... Um, misprint which so this mm -hmm. is after 1979 that the costs of an issue which was a, a thousand uh, copies was 200 pounds uh, and looking at the 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 historical inflation website that's equivalent to just over a thousand pounds today so it was more than peanuts you know for for uh, totally informal organisations uh, at that stage wouldn't have had any budgets or uh, formal, you know, we'd have had a bit of cash here and there or had benefits, but, you know, you had no, no um, funding, basically. So was it just mainly through donations or selling the copies of the magazine that you managed to raise funds? Or I I can't remember to be honest for how we got the startup funds, but certainly once we'd got the first issue going, the aim was to cover the costs, and I think we more or less did that. There might have been occasional benefit as well, but I think we managed to cover the cost, but literally by you know ourselves being responsible for selling them and and getting the money back in. Yeah, I can imagine that that was quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took it was very, It took a lot of time and dedication. Obviously, we're talking about these specific journals, but I think it is worth noting that, of course, there's lots of other sorts of ephemeral publications going on, um, and particularly newsletters, um, like the Edinburgh Women's Liberation Workshop had a duplicated newsletter, and that that I think is written about in Shirley Henderson, Alison Mackay's uh, collection, Britain Diamonds. Whereas um, Women's Aid also had a newsletter, and Women's Aid, uh, well, Scottish Women's Aid, when it was set up in the mid-70s, had Scottish office funding. So they at least had some uh, official government money that, that to employ staff, and that would have helped. You know, we were funded out of our own pockets, basically, or to our own labour. Yeah, of course. From your perspective, when you were working on the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal or Misprint, did you see any kind of difference between them and sort of the newsletters and things like that in terms of content or in, in terms of aims or, or were they all kind of working towards the same purposes? I think there would be some differences. The, the the main one of the differences I would comment on with the Edinburgh Women's Liberation newsletter was that the, it remained a duplicated newsletter, and I think it was well, there's a lot of quite personal material in it. I think, and people would have also been having you know different viewpoints on issues, some of which might be quite contentious. Um, I think what was different about the journal and misprint was we were trying to do something that was for a wider public, um, although clearly it was very feminist in tone, it wasn't, I don't think it was aimed at the women in, women in the street, if we can use that cliche, but it was trying to give 
a coverage of uh, events, campaigns, uh, and responding to news that was going on in the press about sex discrimination, equal pay issues, as I've said. So I think that was probably different from what the newsletters were doing. But there would have been an overlap in terms of the content. The, the thing that was most notably different would have been that we were actually doing something that was printed, mm. um, albeit, uh, as I've called it elsewhere, as Sam is that, you know, do-it-yourself publication, it was being printed at printers. So it, it, it was a bit more sophisticated production than a duplicated newsletter. Mm. We've mentioned actually a couple of times uh, Shirley Henderson and Alison Mackay's wonderful edited collection, uh, Grit and Diamonds. I'm just thinking about a quote where you say that rather than being born, misprint sprang fully armed from the fission of its predecessor, the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal. So we've kind of spoken about how the Scottish Women's Liberation Journal and misprint were slightly different from the newsletters, but I'm wondering whether there was any distinct differences between the journal and misprint, or were they kind of, was misprint a sort of continuation on of the journal? I think that in in many respects it was a continuation of, of the journal. Um, there was a, a split, of course, and uh, again, Sarah Brown covers this in some some detail in her book on the women's liberation movement in Scotland. Um, but my account of this would be it was primarily a split between socialist feminists and and radical revolutionary feminists, and that's. There may be other perspectives on this, and I, you know, I'd like to stress that again. But people in the socialist feminist um, groupings obviously wanted to also engage with working class politics, with the implication that that meant on certain issues you'd be working in alliance with with men, and that was clearly the case when you come to the uh, action over defending the 1967 Abortion Act and working with trade unionists. So that's a very good example of that, those sorts of alliances. Whereas radical revolutionary feminists tended to have an analysis that was about gender having primacy over class and patriarchy being the thing that you had to tackle um, first and foremost. So, so I'm not... And again, there was more of an overlap between these positions and people might have represented in, in the past, but that, that was one of the issues. And the, the other issue was, I think, and again, I would stress this is just my perspective, it was a Scottish focus. Um, because we'd set up the initial journal with an open collective, um, after it started and was beginning to get out to an audience, other people joined the collective. And that meant that there was a move towards different types of, of, of publication or less of a focus on, I think, the socialist feminist end or the Scottish end. So I think that was really what was behind the split. And when we we formed uh, Misprint, we did, did two, two things. Um, one was to sort of reaffirm our aims. Uh, the other was to say, well, the editorial was not an open group and that, that we would make decisions on who else could join it. Um, and, you know, these issues around collective working and strains and stresses of it were very common uh, and going on into the 80s as well, um, cooperation being so much, cooperatives and collectives being so much 
the the ideal style of work that was true in women's aid as well um for, you know for feminist and other left-wing and radical anarchist well anarchists might even might not even have managed collectivism, but you know the, the different groupings. We're all we're all um, working, and the idea of the collective being the ideal mode, and of course many people getting into rather serious difficulties with that. So I, I think you know our experience fitted with that. But to, to the restatement of the aims again, if I can quote from misprint number one, which was published in August 1978. It, it said it, that what Ms. Print aims to do is to stimulate debate in the women's liberation movement and to develop analysis of the position of women in Scotland and the role of women in Scottish politics. And, and I think that that's the, the sort of defining aim. It's about developing analysis of the position of women in Scotland, whether that was about history, sociology and politics, clearly, and also I think wanting to engage with politics, although when I was reflecting on this, most of us at that time were not in uh, parties. Um, so I think that that issue of how we would engage with politics in Scotland was, was perhaps a bit of a challenge. Things changed after 1979, after Mrs Thatcher came to power and more feminists joined the Labour Party, for example. And that, that's very clear in, uh, in the way some of the debates in, in Ms. Print develop after that point, I think. I was going to ask about the lifespan of these various magazines. Um, th there's clearly deep continuities across the women's liberation movement. Uh, and you've talked about the kind of extended networks and conferences and newsletters that really sustained a whole lot of activity um, right across the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. But we have in SWLJ, Ms. Print and Harpies and Quines, which was, of course, a different magazine uh, running from 1992 to 1994. We have magazines that have a sort of short, intense burst. They last <laughs> for two to three years, and then they disappear again. Do you have any explanation for that or any reflections on, on how those short bursts relate to the, the deeper continuities of the movement? Uh, I think um, looking at the magazine specifically, um, well, a number of things. One, uh, as I was saying, in terms of, well, it was a lot of work and we had very little money. Um, uh, done collectively, sustaining momentum is quite hard. Um, I'm not quite sure what happened at the end with the Misprint Collective because I was um, living in Sheffield for a while. And then when I came back to work in Aberdeen, I think it had had folded by that time. So and I, I'm not quite sure what people, again, who was it, the people who were involved with it at that time, which had seen as the reason for that. Um, but they, they took a lot of effort. Um, and we didn't have, at that time, distribution networks that, that you could easily get magazines out through. Um, and I think, again, if, looking back at contributions in grit and diamonds that comes out in for some of the women writers also in stromolian itself stromolian a scottish feminist publisher that published grit and diamonds but uh, and other books earlier um including fiction and and also fact work like sarah nelson's work on uh, incest uh, um, and and abuse um the the, the these again were small non-profit making 
uh, operations, attempting to get a foothold, um, find an audience without being part of commercial publishing world. Um, and there was a period when there was the public, pub, sorry, publications distribution cooperative and then Bookspeed, where that helped get radical publications distributed around Scotland and the north. It was originally the Scottish in Newcastle, I think. But you know, the sense of always being on the margins mm -hmm. um, and struggling to get a foothold. Although it is interesting to, to note that Evelyn Hunter's first book on Scottish Women's Handbook was published by Edinburgh European Edinburgh University Students Publication Board. So, so the, 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 there were people looking for opportunities where they arose, but there really wasn't a, a space in the publishing world or in the distribution world to get things out. Uh, easily to a wider audience. And obviously Harpies and Quines had the problem with distribution, um, even in the early 90s. But another side to the print publication is that even if the, the magazines were intermittent, I think people were finding other spaces uh, to publish, uh, whether by invitation or, or setting up the, the, their own ways of organising things like Stramalian. Um, so that one of the spaces that became available in the 1980s would have been the Scottish Government Yearbook and then Scottish Affairs um, and the Unit for Study of Government in Scotland, which hosted conferences and produced reports and politics departments, Waverley Papers and so on. And, and some, some of these um, publications kind of straddled an academic and activist uh, audience. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so if you if you put all the print culture together, you'd see a sort of build up, but it's not always in the form of magazines. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see some of those political magazines and even sort of political science reviews. They they gradually acquire a more sort of official institutional role um, into the eighties and nineties. I wonder if one reason that that's possibly not the case with these feminist magazines is that they were at some distance from constitutional developments and from party politics. So one thing that's so striking about some of the 80s magazines is that they're directly trying to intervene in Scottish party politics. Was, was there a sense that these feminist magazines were were not focused on, on that terrain? I, because my own involvement was very much on the, on the politics side and uh, not as a not as a party member but but just generally around uh, politics and public policy and um, particularly in the devolution campaign issue of women's representation I, I can't really comment on what else was going on um, I think I suppose the general point to make is that, that there was very diverse feminist culture and some people would not have been concerned with politics politics uh, and others were. Certainly prior to the 1979 referendum, I, I think we do comment on that in misprint, that um, most of the women's movement wasn't really very engaged with uh, devolution campaign. Mm -hmm. um, the big exception to that were probably the legal and financial independence campaign groups in Glasgow and Edinburgh um, who produced Scottish Women's Charter because because of that interest in law legislation um, and the knowledge that if there was devolution, there would be a different lawmaking process and you wanted to engage with that. 
In these feminist magazines, there's a very practical sense of people doing things, organizing things, sharing information, uh, and solving problems in a sort of collective way. And a lot of that feels very real and concrete in its engagement and a little bit different to the more speculative commentary we find in other Scottish political magazines of the period. But there are a few moments in which we see these feminist magazines connecting with other Scottish titles. So in issue two of SWLJ, there's a critique of an article in Q magazine on women in Scotland written by Stephen Maxwell. Did you feel that these Scottish feminist titles were part of a wider Scottish magazine scene? Or were they really part of their own feminist print culture, looking, for example, more to spare rib? Um, they probably look both ways is the answer to that. Um, I'm not sure, again, in a general sense, how much women in the movement would have been reading other um, magazines, Scottish magazines. And um, the piece you refer to about... Um, uh, critique of Stephen Maxwell. I think that was myself that wrote that, and I sort of, you know, would see it as being part of the 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 culture of polemical style at mm -hmm. the time. But and and these days, I think we'd probably not not address the issue <laughs> anything anything like you can't that. Can't take it back now, um, <laughs> uh, No, no, I know it's all there in print. Um, and I think if I remember rightly, uh, I mean, I hadn't met Stephen then. I subsequently uh, met Stephen who had, when I came to work for Scottish Education Action for Development. And Stephen had been working there and then was moving on to Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations. But um, I, I didn't know him. I, I, um, I, so it was really responding to the, the piece. Um, it was a notion that Scottish society was more democratic and, and better for, for, for women. And that, that, that's a, that was around a bit, you know, the idea that Presbyterian churches were democratic, etc. Um, and I think that I wouldn't be unique in, at that time in the women's movement and not and taking the kind of view that um, Scottish culture was actually and, and society was more difficult for feminists to, to, to function in um, rather than having a, a good tradition of democracy that was open to women. Um, but that's, you know, that's all uh, something that's been written by a young person with not much understanding of history, although having said that, a lot of the history hadn't been written at that time. So I definitely give much more nuanced accounts now, nowadays. Um, but, but I think we were aware of what was going on, or some of us were. Um, but also, uh, Spare Rib, I know the late Aileen Christensen wrote to Spare Rib uh, to point out, you know, that, that when they were talking about changes in, in the law, that it was not, it didn't refer to Scotland, it was about England and Wales, and not, not acknowledging that things in some, certain, certain aspects of the law were better in Scotland, like the acknowledgement of rape within marriage happened in Scottish law than before, before uh, it did uh, in England and Wales. So there, there were issues like that. So people kept an eye on what was going on. I think the other thing to point out, um, this goes back to the idea of, you know, being an international movement and networking outside. Um, uh, the, for example, I knew some of the people who were involved in setting up Feminist Review. And when, when so that was really the first 
British Feminist Academic Journal. And when that was set up, they had a series of readers' meetings, and one of them was in Glasgow, which I helped to organise. Um, so we did know what was going on elsewhere as, as well, but I think for the people like myself involved in the magazines and subsequent publications, the key focus was building up our knowledge and understanding of the situation in Scotland. I was approached by Tom Nairn in the early 1980s to write something for the Bulletin of Scottish Politics that he was then organising. And he phoned me up in Aberdeen. Um, I was working in Aberdeen at the time. And I didn't know Tom, so I don't recall how he got my contact details. Um, and I didn't, in fact, meet him until much later, until the 1990s, when he was doing his course on uh, nationalism at uh, the politics department at Edinburgh University. And he asked me to do a session on gender, on that. That was the late 1990s. But I think that the prompt for the contact would have been the publication of my Women Workers in Scotland, which came out in 1982. And that was the product of a research project at Glasgow Women's Centre, which uh, was funded by a grant from the Equal Opportunities Commission. And I carried out research on women workers and trade unions uh, in Scotland with a questionnaire and so on. But this publication, I think it's worth noting that like um, Glasgow Women's Studies Group, Uncharted Lives, which came out in 1983, um, were both published by small independent publisher Press Gang and they were both funded by the groups concerned. So it's that kind of point of still having to self-publish, I think, that... I want to emphasise there. Anyway, the proposed bulletin of uh, Scottish politics never came to be. Um, and the article that I'd written for it was handed on to Syncrastus uh, and also an article by Stephen Maxwell on the 79 group. The, the main theme of the article th that appeared was that on the one hand, uh, the women's liberation movement in Scotland was flourishing in its variety, but on the other, feminist writing uh, was still having an uphill struggle uh, to get published. And I think that was seen as being a problem about funding and finding publishers who were interested. Um, not a unique, not a challenge that was unique to feminism, but also uh, for radical publications more generally. But I think we also felt there was a challenge. Um, of male chauvinism, as the phrase was in those days, um, in left-wing politics. So the article was sort of arguing that left and radical publications needed to give feminist ideas more space, at the same time as they should also be independent feminist mm. publications. And that's a really clear running theme across these magazines um, on the Scottish cultural and political scene from the 60s to the 90s, is that while it's clear there were key women figures often behind the scenes or working as part of editorial collectives, um, the vast, vast majority of the writing is done by men. And although there is um, quite a lot of interest in women's issues and in feminist politics, it, it often feels rather marginal to the other political interests of these magazines. And I think uh, you were involved with the women's group attached to Radical Scotland later in the 80s. How did that come about? Uh, well, I think you know. I, I would your point about marginality is, I think, very much the the one that that we felt, and it was, you know, the sense of keeping trying to get a foothold. Um, I think that the, the article there may be a link. I don't know. There may be a link to the article that was in St. Crastus because that appeared in 1985, and uh, being approached by Radical Scotland in the mid 1980s. 
I just started working at Scottish Education and Action for Development. That was in the middle of 1985. And Alan Lawson got in touch with me. In fact, Alan lived down the road. So, so we, we saw, you know, we obviously see each other in the passing as well as, as, as contact through um, uh, uh, Radical Scotland. And the collective then were uh, Radical Scotland were keen to get more women publishing articles in the magazine and a small group of women got together. Now, I think that would have come via contacts that Radical Scotland had, because it wasn't like a, a pre-existing group that I was involved in. It was people that I was meeting uh, at that time. And I can't remember. I think there were about half a dozen of us. And I can't remember uh, how uh, who all the members were. But, but one was Shirley Henderson, who was then working for Women, Women's Aid, and another was Glenis Watt. Um, who was working for the Lothian Community Relations Council. Um, and uh, Glennis was also in the management committee at Scottish Education and Action for Development. So you can see how the networks work there. And we came, we had a meeting, uh, several women, as I say, can't remember precisely whom, uh, um, with um, members of the Radical Scotland Collective. And I don't remember precisely who either, but probably Alan Lawson, Kevin Dunyon, Jim Smith, um, others maybe. Um, and then the women's group, we met for a while, and um, there are some minutes from this that are with my papers in the National Library. And the idea, I think, was both that the people in the group should write articles, but also encourage uh, other women to do so. Um, and certainly in the later 80s, there are quite a few articles by women, but they wouldn't all have been, I think, initiated by our group, but that, that was what was going on. My memory, and I don't know if this represents a view of everybody concerned, was that in the end we kind of felt we'd rather have a, an independent um, Scottish, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, independent feminist uh, magazine. Uh, and um, although none, that, that group didn't go on to produce such a thing. But I think it is worth commenting that Shirley Henderson went on with Alison Mackay to produce the anthology Grit and Diamonds, and that was published in 1990. And I got involved working with Eleanor Gordon on two volumes of Scottish Women's History, um, published by Edinburgh University Press, uh, The World of Ill Divided and Out of Bounds. So we, we both sort of continued on publishing trajectories, but not uh, magazines as such. Mm. I think there's a really interesting story that... Um probably others would need to write about how the whole domain of uh, feminist print culture in Scotland and this slightly broader political magazine culture often centered on cultural and constitutional change are often kind of bumping into one another, um, involving the same networks, the same people, and occasionally coinciding, but never very easily and, very, and never on a sort of sustained cooperative basis. I know there are uh, stories of other key magazines of that period in which there was some real difficulty uh, about incorporating or making space for feminist perspectives. Um, and that seems to be quite a theme of, of the 1980s. Yes, I, I think, uh, I mean, my sense, I mean, looking back, is it's quite interesting how much it's um, people come together for a bit of time and produce something, but, but actually sustaining over the long term is always a challenge. And I think that's true within feminist networks, it's true within other networks. And, and I think also looking back, I can see that, uh, you know, that the argument about feminists being given space in left-wing and radical journals was in fact being taken on, but it also 
wasn't necessarily very comfortable. The sense of the agenda is not quite meshing. Um, although having said that, clearly uh, we were interested in devolution and that's much more obvious in the 1990s when all the campaigning around women's representation and so on. But that's still very much done um, an autonomous women's or you know activities with with interaction at various points with with wider groupings that's not so much about publication as the the campaigning there i i do think it's worth mentioning of course that in terms of magazines although the, the women involved with Rad radical scotland at that point didn't themselves produce a magazine of course leslie ruddock did then uh, produce harpies and quines and i wasn't involved with that but i read it and i was disappointed that it didn't survive uh, at the same time there were other developments going on for example the women's claim of right for scotland uh, in Scotland. I, I wasn't involved with that either, but it's published by Polygon in 1991. And that played an important um, role in getting uh, the issue of women's representation taken on by the Scottish Constitutional Convention. In the same year, 1991, there was a conference sponsored uh, by Scotland on Sunday and Edinburgh District Council Women's Committee, uh, Women in Scotland, the Agenda for the 90s. And that was initiated by Sue Innes, who had a column in Scotland on Sunday at the time. And it was out of that conference that the feminist organisation and gender emerged. And one of the things we did in the early years when gender was to publish the annual gender, gender audit, and that appeared from 1993 to 2000. And this was a different type of public publication. It was much more social research-based analysis of data, uh, looking at research on gender inequalities in Scotland and pointing out the extent of them and their persistence. Uh, but I think the point about the gender audit, it was produced on the same model as the earlier journals. Um, there was a collective, um, among others, Sue Innes, Alice Brown, Fiona Mackay and myself, and there was quite a few others, so I won't go on to name everybody. But, and all the labour was voluntary. Um, the technology had moved on. Uh, we were word processing by that stage and we were collecting in contributions on floppy disks. I don't know if people remember those. Um, uh, and uh, you know, did all the layout and so on ourselves and had it printed uh, at the Edinburgh University Reprographics Unit, which was low-cost uh, printing. And we sold it at conferences and seminars, took copies to bookshops, and uh, we had some subs as well. But we're basically doing this, the same thing as we were doing in the 1970s, mm -hmm. right all, uh, uh, you know, do, do all the, the, the layout and then... Uh, hawk it around as much as we can. <laughs> so the, the, the publishing methods may not have changed much, but it's, it's really interesting to think that some of the political developments, both in feminism and in Scotland, can be kind of charted through that shift from something like SWLJ to the gender audit, where you've got people, I guess, much closer to the institutions yeah. of social governance um, and academic social science using those skills and their professional ability to lobby and advocate much closer to the terrain of government rather than uh, on, on the kind of radical consciousness raising fringe. Yes, I think that that's, that's probably right. And uh, although I can, that doesn't represent the whole of the women's movement, so I wouldn't care to say what else was going on, but the, 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 the sort of 
groupings that were involved in setting up the organisations like in, in gender were, that were very much involved in the debate about the parliament, what sort of parliament it should be. Uh, not necessarily all in political organisations or parties, very much a broad alliance, but yes, in, engaged with trying to shape uh, new institutions that we were visualising uh, for the future. I think it's it's interesting that we're you know talking about spear rib and of course spear rib has um, through the digitization project with the British Library and a few other projects gained quite a lot of um, academic and popular attention recently and I think um, this is consistent across a lot of other feminist magazines but Scottish feminist magazines seem to have had sort of little of that attention and. I wonder what you think or why you think that might be the case and if that's something that you think we need to be working to rectify. Um, well, I suspect in the first instance that because there weren't very many of them, that they may not be quite, they may be hard to find. Um, and I know, I mean, I've deposited material in the National Library and also Glasgow Women's Library, but I suspect there's a lot more material that isn't necessarily easy to locate. I'm not sure what the position with Scottish Women's Aid would be, because Women's Aid, of course, carried out its own oral history project recently, the Speaking Out project. But Women's Aid, because it's had, uh, you know, been, it was formally organised because it had to be in order to get funding and to run refuges and so on, um, has had its own newsletter, uh, you know, for a very long period. Um, and I don't know where copies of these are and how they might be accessed. Um, that's not the same as magazines, of course. The, the, the newsletters are not the same as you know magazines published for the public. But um, so I think there's an issue about tracking them down in the first instance, uh, and because in any case they never had big print runs uh, and were hard to distribute, as we've discussed the numbers of people who would have been reading them would have been relatively small. I mean, again, I noticed with, with misprint number three, um, it, the print run was being increased from a thousand to one and a half thousand, um, which is pretty small. Because I think you know, when, you, you, when you've when you written about harpies and quines, you mentioned it was, what, 12,000, I think, by the time it folded. Yeah. Just really significant difference. Um, and I, I think as, a, as a, a, you know, that, that kind of indicates that there probably is a lot of material that may still be out there to collect. Um, I'm not sure how wide a range of ephemeral literature Glasgow Women's Library has. Um, but so I think there's a, just to, I suppose, to repeat myself, there's a problem about identifying the material whether we're talking about the, the, the printed publications for a wider audience or other types of publication. And I, I think that certainly it is worthwhile uh, academics researching it because we still have um, a limited knowledge of the history of the, of the movement from the 1970s on. And, the, you know, I've written things that, that are effectively participant accounts and therefore 
clearly have a, a, a perspective that is limited by the form of that participation and doesn't represent the whole movement. And similarly, um, you know, the works that we've mentioned, uh, Grit and Diamonds and Sarah Brown's book on the women's liberation movement, both do a lot to show the range uh, and how the movement flourished and continued. Um, but I think there's definitely more to be done to get other perspectives and to look at, at you know, the character of other publications. As you were leafing through these uh, magazines again, was there anything that jumped out at you as uh, an article or a debate or even a cartoon that you found particularly memorable or that kind of captured what was special about these magazines? Um, I think it's worth mentioning uh, the late Sue Innes's, uh cartoon. It wasn't credited in the magazine, but the, the, the parody of the Bruins. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was Sue Innes who drew that. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. I won't try and read it out because I'll butcher it. it it's no. hard to describe. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And there is a lot of fun in these magazines. Um, I was just reading one of the for and against uh, the film Grease reviews in Misprint. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of playful interest in popular culture. Yeah, yes, I, I think that that was around. Although when, I have to say when I was rereading it, I, reading the, the issues, I thought we, we did take ourselves very seriously. And, and I think... By the time of Harpies and Quines, there was a lot more upfront humour uh, in the magazine. You know, I'm not saying that we didn't have a sense of humour, but I'm not sure how much that that was transmitted actually in in the magazine. It's no, it's no more po-faced than the the leftist journals of the period, in my view. <laughs> yeah, well, you can there there's an influence going on there. <laughs> The Scottish Magazines Network is supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council.